kingdom is spreading, oh, tell ye the story, God's banner exalted shall be. The earth shall be full of his knowledge and glory as waters that cover the sea. Acts chapter 15, verses 1 through 5. Acts chapter 15, beginning in verse 1. And certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Therefore, when Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension dispute with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. So, being sent on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, describing the conversion of the Gentiles, and they caused great joy to all the brethren. And when they had come to Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all things that God had done with them. But some of the sect of the Pharisees who believed rose up, saying, It is necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. Chapter 15 has been called the theological epicenter of the book of Acts. It is widely regarded as one of the most important chapters in the New Testament. But what is it all about? It is definitely about a controversy in the early church, but what the controversy was is itself a controversial issue. To understand Acts 15, we need to review some significant events we have already considered, and we need to piece together through investigative inference some things that led up to these events but were not mentioned in Luke's record. The story begins in Acts chapter 8, when God put out some extraordinary exertions to bring the evangelist Philip together with a eunuch from Ethiopia. This man probably would have been a proselyte to Judaism if he had been able. In his heart, it seems, he was fully committed to the God of heaven. But in his flesh, he was terminally excluded from full participation in the worship of Yahweh, at least under the old system. But the old system had come to its close, and the era of Christ had begun. So, in his providence, God brought the gospel to this man, and he was baptized, and he received a name better than that of sons and daughters, and he went on his way rejoicing. There was still much work to be done in that man to bring him fully into the kingdom of God, but what had been done was a sort of prophetic sign act. He was the first fruits of the Gentiles, a flag planted at the uttermost parts of the earth, promising the continued conquest and increase of the kingdom of God among the nations. Now, it's important to note that what happened on the road that led to Gaza south of Jerusalem was not known to the apostles, or evidently to anyone in the church other than Philip himself. During this early period in church history, Though the Spirit was inspiring sermons which, if properly understood, contained all the grand components of the gospel message, including the promise of justification by grace through faith and the universal reach of Christ's reign even to those who were not Jewish, yet many of these deeper truths of the Christian message were not apprehended by the Judean Jews, even the apostles and faithful leaders in the church like James, the brother of the Lord Jesus himself and an elder in Jerusalem. 
Those first Christians were caught up in the exultant and glorious truths that Jesus had risen from the dead and that God had shown that he was the Christ and had given him a throne in glory from which to conquer and rule the planet, what they did not seem to realize, which is somewhat understandable given their situation, was the impact these things would have on the legal code which had been given to Israel by Moses many years earlier, along with its rituals and rules and ordinances for worship and daily living. The Hellenist Jews, that is, the Jews with a Greek cultural background, seemed to apprehend much sooner that if the age of Messiah had come, the old systems, like the Law of Moses and the Jerusalem Temple, would be giving way to something new and better. However, since the Judean Jews did not perceive this as a rule, they kept on living essentially the same way they had lived before, simply adding the new elements which the worship of Jesus Christ had brought into their old religious practices and customs. As a part of this continuation of the old way of things, those Jews, including the apostles, ignored the Gentile populations and focused only on the ministry of the gospel among their own number. While this sufficed for a time, according to the plan of God, eventually it threatened to subvert the purposes of Christ as expressed in the Great Commission— that his kingdom should expand to every creature of all nations in all the world. Thus, in Acts chapter 10, we had the case of Cornelius, the first public Gentile convert to Christianity. God arranged that the apostle Peter himself would be the one to preach the gospel to Cornelius and his household. And while that was taking place, God manifests the great miracle sign of the baptism in the Holy Spirit, to show clearly that his kingdom through Christ extended to include those who did not follow the law of Moses. Concurrent to the Cornelius event, some of the Hellenist Jews, who had been scattered from Jerusalem during the persecution by Saul of Tarsus, traveled to the city of Antioch on the Orontes, and in their passion to spread the word of God, they preached to and baptized Gentiles, thus constituting the first congregation with a mixed membership of Jew and Gentile, to exist without the direct intervention of God. The apostles and disciples in Jerusalem sent Barnabas to investigate and encourage the new work, and what he saw was in his estimation a clear manifestation of the grace and power of God at work. Barnabas fetched Saul of Tarsus, now a disciple of Christ as well, and they began to work in Antioch. They labored there for about a year before word came from God that a great famine was going to afflict the land of Judea and the Christians in Antioch gathered some relief money and sent it by Paul and Barnabas and a young Gentile Christian named Titus to the elders of the church in Jerusalem and the congregations in the area. This is recorded in Acts chapter 11 verses 29 through 30. During this visit, Paul, Barnabas, and Titus had a meeting with some of the pillars or the great leaders of the church in Jerusalem, Peter and James and John, to which Paul makes reference in Galatians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Now, it should be noted that not everyone agrees with this chronology of events, but it makes the most sense to me in the final analysis of all the relevant data. In Galatians 2 and verse 1, Paul says that, after 14 years, that is, 14 years from his conversion, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, 
and also took Titus with me. And I went up by revelation. This is referring to the prophetic revelation given by Agabus regarding the famine. And I communicated to them that gospel which I preach among the Gentiles, but privately to those who were of reputation, lest by any means I might run or had run in vain. So Paul says that while he was in town, he took advantage of the opportunity to share with them what he had learned from Christ and what he had been preaching in order to make sure that they were all preaching the same thing with the same understanding. Verse 3 continues, Yet not even Titus, who was with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. And this occurred because of false brethren secretly brought in, who came in by stealth to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage, to whom we did not yield submission even for an hour, that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. Evidently, while they were in Jerusalem, some party in the church there who Paul calls false brethren, and who he characterizes as though they were utterly insincere and were only trying to cause division in the church, insisted that Titus the Gentile be circumcised. Yet Paul says that neither he nor the apostles would agree to that because they found that insistence contrary to the gospel. Verse 6 continues, But from those who seemed to be something, whatever they were, it makes no difference to me, God shows no personal favoritism to man, for those who seemed to be something added nothing to me. But on the contrary, when they saw that the gospel for the uncircumcised had been committed to me, as the gospel for the circumcised was to Peter, for he who worked effectively in Peter for the apostleship to the circumcised also worked effectively in me toward the Gentiles, and when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that had been given to me, they gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the uncircumcised. Now, the meaning of all this is simply that during this meeting between Paul and the other apostles and leaders of the church at Jerusalem, there was no correction or criticism made against him regarding the message that he preached, namely that all men, Jew and Gentile alike, are justified before God only by the pardon of their sins through faith in Jesus Christ. After this meeting, Paul and Barnabas returned to Antioch and were dispatched on their first missionary journey on which they established several churches of Jews and Gentiles, and it seems mostly Gentiles, throughout the region of Galatia. When they returned from that journey, Luke says they stayed in Antioch on the Orontes for a long time, and that brings us to the point where we left off in our last study. What happened during that long-time stay in Antioch. Well, first, Peter came to visit. In Acts chapter 12, an attempt was made against his life, and he had gone into hiding. We're not sure where he was for the previous three years, but at some point he came to Antioch and he assisted in the work there. But while he was visiting, something troublesome happened. Back to Galatians 2, now in verse 11. Now when Peter had come to Antioch, I withstood him to the face, because he was to be blamed. For before certain men came from James, he would eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision. And the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him, so that even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. Thus, it seems that at first, Peter, in accordance with what had been agreed upon during their previous meeting in Jerusalem, 
was participating in the work normally and enjoying full fellowship with the Gentile brethren. Full fellowship is described as eating with the Gentiles, because that was considered by the Jews a manifestation of fraternal intimacy that was off-limits with unclean people. Paul says that in time, however, certain men came from James, and that language indicates that they came on James's behalf with a message from him. Whatever that message was, it changed Peter and many of the other Jewish brethren, and in time even Barnabas, and they withdrew their fellowship from the Gentile Christians. In other words, the church was dividing. What could James have said? My suggestion is that James expressed concern that the way Paul and the Antioch brethren were preaching the gospel was encouraging what theologians call antinomianism. The word antinomianism simply means lawlessness. And the idea posed as a question could be worded this way. If one is justified by faith, is it necessary for him to obey God at all? Does he need to have any works so long as he has faith? When Paul accepted people who did not follow the law of Moses, and remember that at this point in the minds of some people, especially those who lived in Jerusalem, there had not been a clear break from the old Mosaic system, at least in most respects. So it gave the impression to those people that Paul did not think it was necessary to obey God or avoid sin at all. And it seems that there may have been some false teachers somewhere who did in fact pervert justification by faith to carry that message. So this concern was raised by James, it seems, and it troubled everyone enough that they vacillated from the position they formerly held and they turned against the Gentile believers. Paul responded to this very harshly and very directly in Galatians chapter 2 and verse 14. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, If you, being a Jew, live in the manner of Gentiles and not as the Jews, why do you compel Gentiles to live as Jews? We who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles, knowing that a man is not justified by works of law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, so that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. For by the works of law, no flesh will be justified. But if we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves also are found sinners. Is Christ therefore a minister of sin? Certainly not. For if I build again those things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. For I through the law died to the law that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. Paul's argument here is very sophisticated, and it reveals that the problem in the church was very nuanced, but it's important that we work through it in order to understand the matter in Acts 15. When we discuss the law, it is important to recognize that the law can be thought of in two senses, either as a code 
or as a system of justification. When we discuss the law as a code, we simply mean a list or a group of laws or commandments or rules that have been imposed on a certain group of people. So, when we speak of the law of Moses in contrast to the law of Christ, we're speaking of two law codes, one given by Moses to Israel and the other given by Christ to the church. However, when we speak of law as a system of justification, we're talking about a way that we use a law code, any law code, whether the law of Moses or the law of Christ or some other, can be used this way. Law as a system of justification means using personal compliance with a law code as one's means of being right with God. Uh, theoretically, that is possible, but only if you are perfectly obedient to every part of the law code. If you violate any aspect of the law code, you are guilty against that law and condemned by it as a transgressor. And this was pointed out most clearly by James himself in James chapter 2, verses 9 through 10, when he said, if you keep the whole law but offend in one point, you are guilty of all. When Gentiles were first accepted into the church, the difficulty this raised to the Jews was that it implied that the law of Moses, the law code they had followed all their lives, was not going to be a part of God's eternal purpose in bringing the nations to himself. In fact, it would become increasingly clear in the process of apostolic preaching that the law of Moses had been abrogated and superseded by the law of Christ, a new law code that in many respects was different from the old one. However, when that became evident, another even more serious issue was exposed. During the earthly ministry of Jesus, he frequently observed and challenged the self-righteousness of the Pharisees and of other Jews as well. Now, when we talk about self-righteousness, we are talking about trying to be justified by works of law. We're talking about using law as a system of justification. That is precisely what the Pharisees claimed for themselves and taught to others. In John chapter 5, verses 39 through 40, Jesus said, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me, and you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. When he says that they thought that in the scripture they had eternal life, he means they thought they would justify themselves by following God's rules, and consequently they didn't need him to come and save them. Of course, the practical problem in being justified by works of law is that it only works if you're perfect. The Pharisees were not perfect. And in order to deceive themselves and others, they had to accentuate the laws that were easy for them to keep and to point out the failures of others in the same regard, as we see in Luke 18, verses 9 through 14. And this was designed to distract themselves and others from all the other ways in which they were failing to keep the law. Now, that problem of self-righteousness was not merely a problem for the unbelieving Pharisees. It was a problem for most of the Jews, even those who had become followers of Christ. And when the work of God in bringing the Gentiles took away the legal code of Moses, 
the very legal code by which these people had been justifying themselves for so many years, it exposed that problem, and it brought it to a crisis point. This is all very important, because when Paul responds to Peter, sometimes it may sound like his concern is to show that the law code of Moses is no longer binding. That's certainly part of his message, but it was not his primary concern. His primary concern was to point out that some of his fellow Christians were apparently seeking to be justified by works of law instead of trusting in Christ. And if they did that, then the very gospel itself was compromised. That was the message of the Judaizers. They were not merely binding the law of Moses, which was wrong enough, but they were teaching that being right with God was being based on one's submission to an arbitrarily contrived list of external regulations that gave people a sense of superiority over others. That was another gospel, or more accurately, a perversion of the gospel. So what Paul said to Peter was, What business do you have binding the law of Moses on the Gentiles when even you haven't kept it? You, being a Jew, live as a Gentile. Your only hope of being right before God is through the gospel, not through the law of Moses. And if that's good enough for you, then shouldn't it be good enough for all men? After this incident in Antioch, it seems that Paul received word that some of that crew of false brethren had even visited the churches he established in Galatia and stirred them up and confused them, even turning some of them away to this false gospel of justification by works of law. In response, he wrote the Galatian epistle in which he reported the events we've just discussed and he gave a detailed elaboration and defense of the points he made to Peter. Paul's letter to the Galatians was filled with consternation, concern, frustration, and at times even anger as he contemplated the spiritual ruin that would come upon these young believers who were so precious to him if they were led astray by this false teaching. And behold, after all of this, in the middle of this great big mess— Shortly after he sent his letter away to the brethren in Galatia, Acts 15.1 says, Certain men came down from Judea to Antioch, Paul's own home congregation, and taught the brethren, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Therefore, Luke says, When Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and dispute with them, They determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. In our next study, we will consider more, now understanding what was going on and what was at stake. Thanks for listening to Verse by Verse. I'm Clinton DeFrance. I'm a Christian Bible student and evangelist from Tulsa, Oklahoma, and this podcast is made available by the Congregation of Christians, of which I am a member in East Tulsa. Please come meet us if you have the chance. You can learn more about us at our website, tulsachurchofchrist.com. Our music is from Andrew Martin, a very talented Christian brother in the Dallas-Fort Worth area of Texas. You can check out his SoundCloud for more beautiful and uplifting productions from him. For news, articles, 
previous episodes or to request a Bible study or a lecture series with me, visit vbvpodcast.com. Please subscribe to the podcast and give us a good review if you enjoy the studies. God bless and have a great week. From all the dark places of earth, seething races, oh, see how the thick shadows fly. The voice of salvation awakes every nation, come over and help us, they cry. The kingdom is spreading, oh, tell ye the story, God's better exalted shall be. The earth shall be full of his knowledge and glory as waters that cover the sea. With praising and singing and jubilant ringing, their arms of rebellion cast down. At last every nation, the Lord of salvation, with glory their effort shall crown. The kingdom is spreading, oh, tell ye the story, God's banner exalted shall be. The earth shall be full of his knowledge and glory as waters that cover the sea.